0: Reflections on the poetry of T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, by Gil Bailey, narrated by Gil Bailey, and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, part four. The only thing uh, that we have to go on, finally, is our own experience. The problem, of course, is that uh, most of our experience uh, most of our personal experience is prepackaged by the zeitgeist, by the cultural consensus, so that what we really are experiencing is not uh, something that's unique to us anyway. It's not our personal experience after all. It's just some version of the, of the sort of experience that we have been programmed to have by the zeitgeist. Uh, two things come from that. One is that if this poem is going to have any value for it, it has to become a personal experience. It has to get in under our skin, and it has the capacity to do that. Uh, And the second thing is that before it can do that, it has to break down some of our uh, habitual ways of experiencing, which prevent us from experiencing anything outside of the cultural consensus. For someone like Eliot, who wants to communicate something outside of that smaller frame of reference, in the context of which most of us have our, what we think of as personal experiences, someone who wants to communicate something from outside that has a preliminary apocalyptic task to perform, apocalyptic in the sense of shattering the worldview uh, before that which is beyond the existing worldview can break in on us. And in, I think in many ways this poem can be regarded as apocalyptic in that sense. It, it uh, breaks down the conventionalities uh, in in terms of which we, u- we usually experience what we think of as our personal experience. One critic writing of Eliot's work said this about what he has done. He said, like Freud, he was willing to experiment on himself. For an acutely self-conscious critic at home in several national literatures and learned in philosophy to grope his way below these difficult accomplishments and bring up essences that had hardly been recognized by psychologists, then to embody these in unforgettable speech is a triumph enjoyed by not more than two or three poets in a century. But what we have to do is to to approach the poem in such a way that it becomes a personal experience and not simply a literary experience, but something more profound than that. We might ask ourselves, is the experience described in these words she smooths her hair with automatic hand and puts a record on the gramophone. Has that been my experience? And does the poem give me that experience back? And if I can discover that place in me, that experience in me, that if I can find where that is my experience, is there somewhere in the vicinity of that experience, another one, which is parallel to the pleasant whining of the mandolin and a clatter and a chatter from within where fishmen lounge at noon? And the walls of Magnus Martyr Hold inexplicable splendor Of Ionian white and gold. Can that be an experience? If one can be a, become an experience by virtue of working with this poem, the other might become an experience. In other words, it, we might learn from this poem something about having experiences at deeper and more profound levels of our being, which will open out. They may have to begin, as, as often as the case, with uh, experiences of chagrin and repentance and a sense of misdirection and all of that. But occasionally these will open out into this other experience where we for a moment sense that the walls of Magnus Martyr hold. Uh, the slogan might be for today, today the wasteland, tomorrow the prologue to the Gospel of John. Can it become an experience and not just a, uh, an abstracted study? The same critic that I just quoted from went on to say about Eliot, he tried to reach a self or level of self, that shares the definitive experience of mankind. From this healthy, creative depth, he tried to bring up figures, metaphors, that would seem to responsive readers to evoke their own inner life. Failure was a chronic danger, but success would be unforgettable. It involved a contract with the reader such that the powerful images would not invite an inspection of the poet's domestic or social relations, but of the reader's archetypal world. Well, the strategy behind all this is to write a poem that is elusive enough to evoke the reader's own life experience as part of the dialogue with the poem. So the, so the poem refuses to answer any of the questions we have about it or life or whatever on the level that they are asked. It refuses to answer the questions on the level they are asked and involves us in something like uh, uh, Jesus' comment, whom do you say that I am? Involves us in in a dialogue with it about its meaning. So the poem is polyvalent, making what I do here difficult in the extreme. And the reason I wanted to mention that is because you must understand that the opposite is also true in almost every instance. As we go through this poem, there are each of these images has an undertow to it, uh, so that it can be experienced in one of two ways, and often they are opposite way. For instance, to get the overall impact of that, we might ask ourselves: uh, This would be uh, this homework. uh, Go home and do a 300 page paper, 300 word paper. Not that bad. um, On the question, uh, is this poem? the celebration of a victory or the documentation of a defeat. And uh, most of us could write a 300-word paper on either of those propositions, I think, if we understood the poem. I want to recall just for a moment what Hugh Kenner said. I I quoted this first session on Eliot. Kenner said, To an unusual degree, the reader takes possession of an Eliot poem or suffers it to take possession of him. That is why thinking or discoursing about it comes so much to resemble the process of self-scrutiny. That is also why so many of the essays and articles which mean to be accounts of Eliot's poetry are actually drafts of the essayist autobiography." Well, of course, that will be true of anything I have to say today as well, and I want to acknowledge that. One, of, If I have any value in the world, it is that I am an utterly typical member of my time and place, my uh, generation and locale. And so. And that's uh, not so bad if you do what I do, because my reactions, I think, are fairly standard uh, with some minor nuances. But I, I So I, I want to suggest that clearly this is coming out of my own grappling with the poem. And uh, others may have many other things to say about it. As a matter of fact, you consult the literature, you find out that this many things I'm going to offer today are not by any means in the mainstream. Some are, but many are not. Uh, but I offer them because I feel them strongly to be uh, Uh, What this poem is is wrestling with, but also with a little caveat, which is to say it has to be a personal experience for you. And if anything I say keeps it from being a personal experience for you, then you can just ignore it. One thing I'm going to do, which most uh, commentators strictly avoid, is that I'm going to interpret the poem in light of what comes afterwards in Eliot's life and in his poetic output. A few years ago, we studied right before we studied the Divine Comedy, we studied uh, Dante's La Vita Nuova. I don't think the La Vita Nuova can be understood at all without without uh, an appreciation of the Divine Comedy. It's only in the light of the Divine Comedy that La Vita Nuova makes any sense, or makes its ultimate sense. And and likewise with with Eliot, I think we have to uh, sort of read the end of the story in order to really understand the beginning of the story and what this this poetic project, uh, this early poetic project, uh, really means. So unabashedly, I'm going to read it in light of what comes after it. I'm not going to be quoting the later things particularly, mm-hmm. but, uh, but having them in mind and, and as we try to understand what's going on here. Fire Sermon was the image in, in the third section. And now we change the imagery, not altogether, but uh, almost altogether, from fire to water. And remember, Madame Sesostras had handed us our card. And she said, this is your card, the drowned Phoenician sailor. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Fear death by water. So the image changes, and there's a very short section for death by water, which is what we've been told to fear by Madame Sesostris and all that she represents. Phlebas, the Phoenician, a fortnight dead, forgot the cry of gulls and the deep sea swell and the profit and loss. A current. Under sea, picked his bones in whispers. As he rose and fell, he passed the stages of his age and youth, entering the whirlpool. Gentile or Jew, O oh, you who turn the wheel and look to windward, consider Phlebas, who was once handsome and tall as you. Well, now we have the drowned Phoenician sailor. Drowned, indeed, underwater, where a current undersea picks his bones and whispers, and he has entered the whirlpool. This seems to me what this section is about, is entering the whirlpool. The whirlpool is where, if I can put it this way, the social self is dissolved. And uh, most of us wait, to a large extent at least, for that to occur at the moment of death. Uh, But the whirlpool, I think, stands for the dissolving of the social self. And to the extent that there's nothing else but the social self to the annihilation that that would entail. But I want to massage the idea a little bit of of the dissolving of the whirlpool and sort of go back and forth with some pieces of literature. I think the way... Uh, what I want to do is share three versions of the Ulysses story, one from Homer, one from Tennyson, one from Dante, uh, to get some hint of what's going on here first of all homer's version of odyssey of the, uh, uh, one particular Odyssean uh, experience which has to do with whirlpool in book twelve there's a big storm, and Odysseus has been has uh, N- negotiated the pass between Skyland and Charybdis already, but the big storm is encountered, and this is what happens. The ship is wrecked. The shipwreck is the, is the collapse of the of the conventional p- way of progressing. The big timber floated free. This is Robert Fitzgerald translation. The big timber floated free. The mast, too, broke away. A backstay floated dangling from it, stout rawhide rope, and I used this for lashing, mast, and keel together. These I straddled riding the frightful storm. Wonderful image of what to do. If your ship ever comes apart in sea in a storm and you, and you can get hold of the mast and keel, lash them together and, and uh, throw your leg up over that. Okay. The mast and keel. Nor had I yet seen the worst of it, for now the west wind dropped and the southeast gale came on once more the twist of the knife taking me north again, straight for Charybdis. All that night I drifted, and in the sunrise, sure enough, I lay off Skyla Mountain and Charybdis deep. There, as the whirlpool drank the tide, a billow tossed me, and I sprang for the big fig tree, catching on like a bat under a bough. Nowhere had I to stand, no way of climbing, the root and bowl being far below, and far above my head the branches and their leaves mast overshadowing charybdis pool but i clung grimly thinking my mast and keel would come back to the surface when she spouted and ah how long with what desire i waited till at the twilight hour when one who hears and judges pleas in the marketplace all day between contentious men goes home to supper the long poles at last reared from the sea Now I let go with hands and feet, plunging straight into the foam beside the timbers, pulled astride and rowed hard with my hands to pass by Skyla. Never could I have passed her had not the father of gods and men this time kept me from her eye. The pool, you see, sucks down the mast and keel. But at that moment when the day is exhausted, at at the violet hour, it pops back up and Odysseus falls on it. And uh, there's this, this great combination of uh, uh, grace and works going on here. And the whirlpool is associated with that, with that uh, transformation. Those who enter the whirlpool like Phlebas the, Ph- the Phoenician are a sign for the rest of us. The rest of us are those who turn the wheel and look to windward. To turn the wheel and look to windward, Eliot's image of turning the wheel is, is, the, is the wheel of fortune. Uh, the, the, the sense that, well, things will just always change in some way, but it's never a profound change. It's never a, it's never a transfiguration. It's a simple change. It's just changing from one thing to another. It's just a, it's just a kind of agitation on the surface of things, but never a profound change. See, when the poem says, Oh, you who turn the wheel and look to windward, it says, I think, oh, you who, tr- who try to experience rejuvenation or rebirth or new life uh, by uh, changing things on the surface. Turn the wheel and look to windward. Consider Phlebas, who has plunged into the whirlpool and in a way is stuck in the whirlpool. Homer's Odysseus went into the whirlpool and came out in a sense. Tennyson's is the opposite. Tennyson's Odysseus, or Tennyson's Ulysses, is one who turns the wheel and looks to windward. Here's how Ulysses begins. Tennyson's Ulysses. It's Ulysses speaking. It little profits that an idle king by this still hearth among these barren crags matched with an aged wife, I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. I cannot rest from travel. I will drink life to the lees, and, lo- and, lo- and then it end- the poem ends with these words. He's speaking to his, his old friends. They're going out on another great expedition, right? Die with your boots on. And lo, we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven. That which we are, we are, one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Well, that is the Ulysses that Dante spoke of. Tennyson at least got that part of it right. That is the Ulysses that Dante spoke of. Tennyson's writing in a a romantic, heroic mode, and Dante was not. Uh, Dante was seeing it with a colder eye than that. The turning of the wheel and looking to windward is simply the earliest stages of the whirlpool. The whirlpool is an inevitable fact of life. But the turning of the wheel and looking to windward is how we experience the whirlpool before we realize it's actually a whirlpool. We think it's just a wheel of fortune game. But it turns out to be the whirlpool, and it has a a vortex to it. And Dante understood that. So so I'm, I'm superimposing all these images. This is Dante's Ulysses. He speaks to Dante. He's in hell. He speaks to Dante, Neither my fondness for my son nor pity for my old father nor love I owed Penelope, which would have gladdened her, was able to defeat in me the longing I had to gain experience of the world and of the vices and worth of men. At the end of the poem it says, Five, five months they're out, Five times the light beneath the moon had been rekindled and as many times was spent since that hard passage faced our first attempt. When there before us rose a mountain, dark because of distance, and it seemed to me the highest mountain I had ever seen. And we were glad, but this soon turned to sorrow, for out of that new land a whirlwind rose. And you will immediately see that there's no distinction between a whirlwind and a whirlpool. A whirlwind rose and hammered at our ship against her bow. Three times it turned her round with all the waters, and at the fourth it lifted up the stern so that our prow plunged deep as pleased another until the sea again closed over us, sucked into the whirlpool. The mountain off which that storm came was the Purgatorial Mountain. All of these together suggest this. There comes that moment when it's time to experience the kind of dissolving of the conventional self for which we have the symbolic image of, on one hand, the whirlpool, on the other hand, the purgatorial climb. And to the extent that we try to address the issue that we're facing at that moment in life by remaining on the surface of it, turning the wheel and looking to windward, we simply postpone the experience of Phlebas the Phoenician. In other words, it happened later or, if at no other time, at death itself. The fact that Gentile and Jew are considered two distinct categories is a symptom of the fact that the Christian age has not taken hold. Paul says there, are, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, Jew nor Greek, but we are all one in Christ. So in, in the sense that we're still being addressed as Gentile or Jew is a symptom of the fact that we have yet to adopt or embrace or comprehend the Christian mystery. So, those, so this poem is now addressing us in that condition, which is our condition, of course. Gentile or, you, or Jew, O oh, you who turn the wheel and look to windward, consider Phlebas, who was once handsome and tall as you. Phleps is a Greek word which means vain, like a vein, like v e i n, like in your body, veins in your body. Phlebas is the accusative plural of that word. Andrew Marvell wrote a poem entitled A Dialogue Between Soul and Body, one stanza of which goes like this. A soul hung up as twere in chains of nerves and arteries and veins, tortured besides each other part in a vain head and a double heart. Notice the pun on V-E-I-N and V-A-I-N. Well, we're going to do a little more massaging around with that. That pun from Marvell, is the best, well, it's it's an available and helpful way of approaching one of the most misunderstood things in the New Testament, and that is Paul's notion of the flesh. When Paul speaks in the New Testament of the flesh and the life of the flesh, the best way we might get hold of it in our time is to think of ego. But it has elements in it which have to do both with V-E-I-N and V-A-I-N. Vein in the sense that it is a slave to untutored instinctuality, but much more profoundly to vain, uh, because of all the arrogances that accrue to the ego consciousness. And then, and then there's even more, of course, because vain means both arrogant and futile. So we've we can get all these things into play here. You see. This is just Phlebas. Now, I don't know if Eliot took the time to go into all that or whether he was just visited by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter. It's there. Phoenician, in Greek, the word for Phoenician and the word for Phoenix is the same word. The Phoenix is is that which arises from the ashes. The Phoenix is a rebirth image. So Phlebas the Phoenician is Mr. Flesh who is reborn. Or, in light of this poem, better said, Mister Flesh, who could be reborn because it's in abeyance. We don't know. Or to make it, to put it in theologically technical terms, the resurrection of the body. Phlebas the Phoenician. Again, there's bodies misunderstood too. I think maybe the way to understand body, in the idea of resurrection of the body, is personality. And the key feature of personality is the capacity to relate to others primarily to god and secondarily to each other as he rose and fell he passed the stages of his age and youth entering the whirlpool gentile or jew oh you who turn the wheel and look to windward consider phlebas in galatians paul had said all are baptized in christ all you all are, have clothed yourselves in Christ and there are no more distinctions between Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, but all of you are one in Christ Jesus. I want to bring into the, <clears throat> our discussion here for a minute the idea of the hypocrisis we spoke of when we talked about the things in the past, the Gospel of Matthew and other things. Hypocrisy in the Gospel tradition Uh, the the Pharisees and Herodians are accused of being hypocrites and others. Our use of the term comes later than the Gospel uh, text. The understanding we have of that term is later than the first century. In the first century, we we have the the hyphenated word hypokritikos, which means something less than a real crisis. A hypocrite is someone who in the face of a genuine crisis substitutes a hypocrisis, a pseudo-crisis. So when Jesus comes along and says, I offer you a choice between uh, this shoddy little conventional world you have in your head and, and the kingdom which is spread out over the face of the earth and men do not see it, the Pharisees say, well, how about, how about the tension between Rome and Israel? Or how about the tension between the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous? the sinful and the un- and the righteous, you see. How about some other thing? The hypocrisis is constantly being substituted as a way of avoiding the crisis. And here in this Galatians passage, Paul is, I think, anticipating a, a sort of a, a general summary of the kind of that will which will typically be presented in the face of the real crisis. That is to say, the difference between the Jew and the Greek, namely the difference between the chosen people and the, the riffraff, the good guys and the bad guys. The ones who have it, the message, and those who don't. Or the difference between the, the, the slave and the free. That is to say, the difference between the rich and the poor. Or the dif- difference between male and female. Gentile, the poem says, Gentile or Jew? Oh, you who turn the wheel and look to windward. And those are, I think, two versions of the same thing. To inhabit a world which defines itself in terms of the hypocrisis is to inhabit a world that has refused to, to face the real crisis and therefore is trying to rejuvenate itself by making moves on the surface of the chessboard and ignoring the fact that ultimately the whirlpool is to be entered. Well, in a way, the poem begins now to enter the whirlpool, takes us into the whirlpool.